everyone. This is the ESOP guy. We are on a journey to an ESOP, starting off the topic today with this. Which means I'd have to be physically at the terminal. Relax, Luther. It's much worse than you think. The terminal is in a black vault lockdown. The only person allowed in the room has to pass through a series of security checks. William Donlow. The first is a voice print identification and a six-digit access code. This only gets him into the outer room. Next, he has to pass a retinal scan. And finally, the intrusion countermeasures are only deactivated by a double electronic key card, which we won't have. Now, inside the black vault, there are three systems operating whenever the technician is out of the room. The first is sound sensitive. Anything above a whisper sets it off. The second system detects any increase in temperature. Even the body heat of an unauthorized person in the room will trigger it if the temperature rises just a single degree. Now that temperature is controlled by the air conditioning coming in through an overhead duct 30 feet above the floor. That vent is guarded by a laser net. That vent is guarded by a laser. Now, I don't know if you're picking up on what I'm going, where I'm going today with this episode. Now, here's the deal. Like, and this is the, this is the one of the reasons why I love doing ESOPs and I'm super passionate about like getting this out there and starting to talk about the process wherever you are in the process. Now, the podcast is, is called the, uh, journey to an ESOP. And the idea is that you're, you could be starting this process literally right now, as this might be your first episode of even listening to anything about ESOPs. Like, wow, that could be like, that could be me. Like you could be telling, Hey, we're telling you, Hey, this is going to be great for you. And all the things that happen with ESOPs. And then you could be down the road already doing your ESOP and like, Oh, this is so challenging and, and difficult. This, this part of mission impossible and this is really kind of like what I what I wanted to talk about today is the idea that how how complex this planning sounds, right? I mean, like, oh my gosh, you got to do this and you got to do that. It sounds impossible, right? So, what we're going to do is play off of that today a little bit with the idea that what is seemingly more difficult because people make it sound so complicated, and I have a lot of my own theories on on why that's the case is really not that complicated. And what Tom Cruise is doing here is he's just kind of breaking down their plan and how they're going to be successful. And if you've ever seen any of the Mission Impossible movies, this is Mission Impossible 1, by the way, which we're going to use in the in the in in this episode just to kind of play off on the idea of, of having a good plan. And then, you know, in their case, their plan always kind of goes a little haywire and they have to kind of improvise, which would is what makes the movie exciting. We don't want an exciting movie when we're doing an ESOP, to be honest with you. We want something that's super predictable. We want we want assurance, like as the owner, that this is the right path for you. We want the assurance or the comfort level with your key people to say, this makes sense. Like this is the direction you want to go. So, so we don't want this to be too exciting. And so part of the process of doing that is going to be under the header of ESOP feasibility. And what's all entailed in that? And that's really going to be the topic that we're going to drive into today because I believe it is a 
a good time for us to talk about this. We've done some work um, to just talk about the process itself, looking at, you know, in the podcast, we've looked at a lot of different things um, over this season that I think are helpful. Um, so as we pick this up, the, the question that people are going to have and I'm going to go into some of the the how tos and in terms of feasibility itself. Like, what are you actually are what are you actually trying to accomplish with feasibility? But the question we really have in in the very beginning is is we don't necessarily want to get things rolling into a snowball of of people and activity um, of you know I hate to say it like I, I, there's so many different ways that people do this that I've learned. And it kind of it kind of freaks me out a little bit if I'm the owner um, in that how they approached like just getting all these people together and then confusing people. So so breaking down the plan is going to be really but having a plan breaking down the plan is going to be really helpful with the goal in ESOP feasibility of helping not just the word feasibility obviously means is this feasible right but helping to to make sure that this is this is actually going to be. The, the right type of approach to what you're trying to accomplish. And that's what we're going to talk about today. If you have just tuned in for the first time, this podcast is, is dedicated to what we call the journey to an ESOP, which is those people that are thinking they might want to be doing some type of ESOP transaction, whether that be in a leveraged transaction or a non-leveraged transaction. Um, so they're in the process of understanding that better. And a lot of times they've picked up and done research. This podcast is to really try to break down things um, much easier for people to understand. As we go into that, so this might be brand new to you. This podcast may be, might be ran, brand new to you. And, and thank you so much to join us today. Um, if it's not, thank you guys for continuing to be on this journey with us. And we're so excited about what's happening with the podcast and also just kind of the connections that have been created over the last four seasons. It's just been very exciting. If you do like the podcast and you believe it's really helpful, please share it with a friend. If somebody you know that might be helpful, you know, they're thinking about the ESOPs and you're, and you're like, you're trying to gather information. They're trying to gather information. I think it's helpful to share it. Um, if you have this part of your, of your platform that you're listening to it, please like the podcast. If you do like it, um, subscribe to the podcast and then rate the podcast a five star rating because that's super helpful for people to have some validation of, Hey, this is, this is a good resource for them. So having said all that, we also have a website called journey to And if you're interested in other episodes, please go to the website. Or if you have a question, just fill out on that, on that form. Um, we do get some questions from time to time that we'll use to base some of the topics on that I think are helpful for other people. Now, as we go into this topic today, I wanted to start off with just the idea and frame this out a little bit. And, and again, we're we're kind of thinking a little bit about how the how the movie works in terms of Mission Impossible, and they they have to go do something. In this situation, they've got to break into the CIA CIA headquarters at Langley, which is beyond impossible, right? I mean, there's just no possible way. That's why this type of thing is so kind of fun to think about. Um, for our purposes, our goal is at this step is to really identify the the possibility of how this is really going to work for a, a specific company with one shareholder or multiple shareholders with with multiple approaches to the way that to to kind of structure this. So one of the one of the calls I had today with a a client that we're working with is 
they may go like a partial ESOP. They may go and use the ESOP and in an, another way, they might use the management buyout maybe a, as a means to affect the succession plan of the key owner and the other, um, you know, plan of succession of, of bringing people up into the organization. So the first thing about that I would say about feasibility that we have to think about is, and this is always something interesting to me when I, when I get to talk to somebody that before they've done any planning at all, they already have like, this is what we're going to do. We're going to have this type of ESOP um, or this, this type of ownership. It's going to be um, an S corporation. We're going to sell 30% and this is what we're going to do. And, and I think that's okay kind of because it's good to have some kind of starting point. But the thing I, the first thing I would share is that we, as we go through a lot of the modeling, as we go through the planning side, there's going to be things that you may not know that'll help to shape out what is these, what the ESOP's going to actually look like as you go. And so without doing the work, it's kind of, I think it's impossible for anybody to say, oh, that's what we're going to do and just jump to into the uh, trustee world and ask a trustee to give you an offer and then go through that um, site visit and go through the due diligence process. And, you know, suddenly you get an offer or you make an offer and, and, and you don't even know, like at the deepest part of that, um, there's a couple things that we we want to stop and ask the question about way before we get there. And so that's part of the process today is to really identify some of those key areas that we're going to want to really think about and develop and shape into a very successful ESOP. If set off will activate an automatic lockdown. Now, believe me when I tell you, gentlemen, all three systems are state of the art. And you really think we can do this? We're going to do it. All right, so that should get us super excited for what we're talking about. I think that the idea behind it, we're going to do this, guys. We're going to do this. We're going to put together this ESOP plan, this feasibility plan. We're going to touch on some things that are really important categorically. Um, the first thing that we're going to touch on is this idea of cash flow, like cash flow from beginning of the ESOP plan to the end of the ESOP plan, I will say without a doubt is going to be one of the most important features that connects to everything. So cash flow, first off, obviously, um, as you've gone through some of the other episodes, maybe, and maybe you haven't, um, valuation, which is, this is not about business valuation today, but it is about valuation in the sense of our starting point, because when we're starting the feasibility model, we're starting with what we estimate the valuation to be, which is going to be primarily based on the cash flow of the company. Now, when I look backwards in cash flow time history for five years, and I see a normalized stream of cash flow that is like a, a roller coaster ride, right? Moving up and down, some years peaking up to, you know, 5 million, 6 million, 8 million, 10 million of EBITDA. And then it's cruising down at like the next year down into the lower, like not just the lot, like, like low end, but the loss, 
losses, like $2 million loss, you know, a loss cash flow or negative cash flow, then peaking back up like a roller coaster cash flow. That's kind of scary, right? So in, initially that cash flow type of, of environment is going to alarm everybody, to be honest. And if your advisor didn't get alarmed when they looked at it, you need, you need to ask some questions about that because something needs to happen to smooth out the cash flow for this process to work really, really the way it's supposed to. Why is that going to, why is that so important? Well, when you think about the feasibility of, of an ESOP, where is the money coming from to buy out the shareholders? It's coming from the company's cash flow. And if it's a leverage transaction, that means, of course, leverage is debt. We are putting debt on the balance sheet. And if you have ever had a company with a lot of debt on the balance sheet, what do you know is that those payments just don't go away and they don't get adjusted as easily as you might want them in the event that your cash flow goes through a roller coaster. And suddenly uh, this year we don't have so much cash flow as we need. We may, we may have had a company that has historically crazy roller coaster cash flow, but they bank when they're high and we're setting that average cash flow something lower. So the valuation is set lower and not like going into the forecasted cash flow and saying, well, even though we had roller coaster cash flow historically, we now know that we will never have that ever again. So we're setting the valuation at these higher forecasted cash flow levels. So cash flow, as we conceptualize this part of the process, we really will want to um, experience a calm when it comes to, yeah, the company has, has the ability to adjust. Now, I know that some advisors will come back and just be like, don't worry about it. Your company's going to be tax free. So, you know, you're going to get cash flow as time goes on. My question is, how much taxes are you saving in a year that the company had a loss? They're not paying any taxes there anyways, right? So, so cash flow, as we, as we talk about it is going to be categorically one of the most important elements of, of our conversation when it comes to feasibility. And the second, the second category is just thinking about the, um, the way that the company is looking at the structure of, of the ESOP itself. So, so tax, the tax environment at this point is going to be very important. So, and this is going to obviously connect back to cash flow because the way that we go about this is going to be, um, going to depend on what we end up with at the end of the day. And so where I'm going with this is, is the, all the, all the people that talk a lot about tax benefits of being an ESOP company. So as it stands right now, we need to take a step back and ask the question first in feasibility and maybe, you know, before feasibility, really, to be honest with you, what type of entity do we have before we even start? If the entity that you have, and when I say entity, I mean the tax entity. If I am a, for instance, if I'm an LLC, a legal liability company, and I'm taxed as an S corporation, that's one type of entity. If I'm um, an, an entity that is taxed as a partnership, if I'm taxed as a C corporation, all of these are going to be important starting points for us. Because when we start thinking about the possibilities and feasibility of whether or not I can use certain tax benefits, 
I need to know what my starting p- place is because they're going going to be dictating um, in the ESOP plan how we're going to adjust for what actually is going to be our most likely scenario. So let me give you a couple thoughts before we get too deep into this, just from a categorically the entity side of things. If my company is is getting a 1065 tax return, that's the form on the ten on the tax form. It's a partnership. And if it's taxed that way, or it's taxed as, and I had this before, I had a company that had the whole company was taxed as a sole proprietorship and showed up on the individual's Schedule C. Now, you might say that that was probably a small company. It wasn't. It was like a $100 million company revenue-wise. So it wasn't a small company. But that's why it's so important to really dig into uh, what is the tax? What is the type of tax entity that we're dealing with? Now, in both of those cases, from a tax standpoint, there is going to be a requirement to convert that to an S corp or a C corporation in order for us to affect a transaction for an ESOP, because the the ESOP trust can't purchase anything but an S corp or a C corp. So we've got to convert those two types of entities into either one of those categories. Now, in looking at that, what you should know is that there is a one-year hold period to avoid short-term capital gains tax rates on um, something that's some entity that's going from partnership to um, S-corp or C-corp or sole proprietorship to S-corp or C-corp. Both, in both those situations, there is going to be a one-year hold period to get to a long-term capital gains rate, which will which will definitely matter. Unless we could convert over to a C, but if we were not a C, then then that that is going to be problematic because of this a C corporation. Um, we needed to have that held as a C corporation for three years, and so it's not as simple as just converting my partnership to a C in order to 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 use the ten forty two. Um, so, so getting into that, what we're really not, we're not yet talking about 1042 or capital gains yet. We're going to get to that in a second for feasibility purposes, but we do want to make sure we've outlined any problems that will potentially be pushing us out in the timeline. And so the timeline would be pushed out if we had to convert from a partnership to, um, or an a sole proprietorship to an S corp or a C corp. Now, in the analysis, we can still go back as we go back and look at the analysis as the tax benefits exist for the S or the C, we just want to understand now that in this case in feasibility, when we're when we're putting down the the plan, we know that an S corporation, whatever the ESOP owns, the ESOP is the trust, whatever percentage of the company they own as an S, that percentage is going to be tax exempt. And we're going to build that into the feasibility model because we're going to want to understand how they are going to have what effect and cash flow that's going to have so that we can understand the ability of the company to pay back the debt payments adequately. And so back to our predictable cash flow idea, we if we know if we're going to have this much in cash, much, much in net income, we can then reasonably predict on a fiscal year basis in the in the go forward forecast how much cash is going to be left over after we have serviced the debt obligation. So let's go back a step for a second. So the debt obligation, when we talk about the debt, 
the debt in the feasibility model needs to be nailed down as as best as you possibly can. And in ESOPs, in an ESOP transaction, that is going to come about from having um, bank financing and or and seller financing, and a combination of those two things typically exist. Or we just have a hundred percent seller financing. All right. So what do I mean by that? Well, the company is going to borrow from a potential lender that could be a bank that they're dealing with, that could be a bank that they're not dealing with, and the seller who becomes, in a sense, the bank to the company and lend, lending them the money to borrow the money to buy the stock. Okay, so from a feasibility perspective, what's happening is we've got to know what the terms of the borrowing will actually be. And so what we're going to be doing is is making sure that we have properly estimated the right amortization schedules and guess what? The right interest rate schedules, even though right now rates have gone up so much. And so one of the things that have come up, you know, and this is just kind of helping to stay really current with, with what's happening in the times is that the rates that people are paying banks, you know, are in the eight, eight and a quarter rate type of environment on a normal um, normal borrowing type of situation. So um, the, some of the sellers are looking at that and saying, well, my company, my company that I'm selling my stock at, right? Now we're changing our minds a little bit and this becoming the trust, the ESOP company um, as it's owned by the trust. But the money that's going out to the banks, they're thinking, well, I could just have that come to me as the uh, selling shareholder and take a, maybe a bigger piece of seller note or maybe more, you know, more than that. So we're having these kind of conversations. Um, so it does matter about the current terms of the, well, what the bank's going to charge. Um, and it's, a, and it does matter really because also the bank, depending on the deal, is going to add some complexity to the deal. Just like we're talking about the complexity of, of the plan. When we add a whole nother element to the deal, then in that terms, from the bank's perspective, it can, it can include financial loan covenants. It will include financial loan covenants. It will include a, some type of debt recapture, excess cash flow feature. It could include, Hey, we don't have enough collateral and we don't feel super comfortable. So we might want to have some type of personal guarantee. And sometimes it, it doesn't include that. Um, and in other things that will kind of get people thinking about, do I really want to go down this road? How important is the liquidity event at the closing going to be to me as we start thinking about that? So we're, as we move past, like, you know, we know we're an S corp. So from that perspective, we can look at the bank financing and the seller financing and start to underwrite the amortization of that cash going out of the company and make sure that the strength of that cash flow is there, which we're, we're going to talk about in a second as far as, you know, the strength, the, the ability, the predictability with all the benefits of being an ESOP. Now, to make it a little more complicated, if we do have a partial ESOP that's an S corporation, we're going to look and isolate the portion of the company that is tax exempt. So just keep it in your head, like if it's a 40% ESOP, that means that 40% now is owned by the trust once the transaction is completed. And a, a K1 is being generated by the company each year for an S corporation that goes to the trust and is exempt. Now, in addition to that, we're also going to pick up a tax benefit of being able to deduct the principal and interest portion of the inside note, the contribution made. So what we have to do in the cash flow modeling for the feasibility is we have to estimate 
all of the potential um, benefits as a, from a tax perspective so that we can predict the total tax that the company is going to owe, whether that's um, because it's an S-corp, the company technically doesn't owe the taxes. It goes flows through to the individual shareholders. So in our 40% example, there's going to be a 60% K-1 going out to the um, individual shareholder or shareholders, and then the 40% is going to come over to the ESOP, and that'll be exempt. So that's going to need to be properly evaluated, um, which is going to be in feasibility. It's going to be we're going to have to estimate what we believe that principal and interest is going to be for the inside note. Um, that would be the note between the, the trust and the company that will allocate will be the means of allocating shares on an annual basis to the employees. So we get a credit, we get a deduction for that. So without knowing that, um, we won't properly estimate the net cash flows available to service the debt. The other thing that we need to do as we think about it from um, uh, um, whether it's an S-Corp or a C-Corp is we're going to need to add and estimate the budget of, of expenses that includes the potential um, trustee if we have one, an ongoing trustee. It'll include for expenses a be- an annual business valuation. It'll include for the expenses fiduciary insurance and and a third-party administrator as well. So we're going to want to make sure we've properly estimated those costs into the cash flow model. Now, if we're a C corporation for feasibility purposes, what we are also going to do is max out. We want to max out the payroll uh, limitation on tw- on the twenty-five percent portion, um, and and basically use that as our primary means of of a deduction for the reducing the taxable income down to have more cash flow available. So we're gonna we're gonna look at if we look at both of those scenarios being an S or a C, then we're gonna want to then build cash flow models around both of those for the company. And now the purpose of that is now we're gonna go back and evaluate the strength of the cash flow. Now some of this happened for the way we do it in the valuation model because we were really going through very intentionally and beating up the forecast because the forecast is is really our picture of what we believe to be the reasonable source of cash going forward, the cash flow going forward. Now, if you break down the forecast and you start thinking about what is the strength of cash flow going forward, we're also looking at what is the potential um, uh, aggressive perception of that forecast, which means basically how are people pushing if they are pushing the envelope on revenue. So let's start with growth. Now, before we get into growth itself, we really want to understand in terms of the strength of the cash flow, we really want to understand the the composition of customer revenue and whether or not that's broken down. Of course, the first thing out of the out of everybody's mouth is concentration. Like, what is the concentration of revenue by customer? Um, if it's more than ten percent, if it's more than twenty percent, if it's more than forty percent, is it more than eighty percent? So we're getting like those like ah. Things start to we start to wince when we get higher and higher in terms of the concentration of revenue. As we look at the customers, are they um, are they really strong? Is the AR aging report revealing to us that we have really good payers as customers? Because that's obviously a it doesn't matter what we've billed our customers if they're not going to pay it or there if there's a big AR problem we want to we want to evaluate that as part of you know really looking at the strength of of our cash flow. 
One thing I would look at typically, and this is because I was a banker a long time ago, is you know what's the you know the the strength of the cash flow really gets represented too in the company's ability to pay off AP accounts payable. So if I have an AP aging, and there's a lot of old stuff on there, you're like, hey, what's happening? Why why is the company not able to pay their their current liabilities adequately on time? This would be a flag for us to talk about like, Hey, what's happening? What's changing? Why is this happening? Um, what, if you have a big problem on your AR aging side, what's happening? Why are we, are we getting into, into customers that don't, that are not quality customers? Cause that's part of that. Identifying the, the strength of revenue is to really identify, you know, quality customers and quality, um, diversification in those customers. Now, one thing I also look at is if we get like a, you know, if the company is contracting or they have a lot of contracts, you know, what, what are the terms of those contracts? Like, is it easy for them to get out if there's an issue? Um, or are they pretty sticky type of contracts? The word sticky gets thrown around a lot when we talk about revenue, just because, um, what we want is we, you know, finance people, we want sticky revenue. We want revenue that's not going to show up today and then be gone tomorrow. Um, we also talk about recurring sources of revenue versus non-recurring sources of revenue. So it's kind of important to to think about when we start to isolate um, the types of revenue. We're going to get now into the business model itself. Now, your business model, one thing I will tell you, and, and this is really kind of important to think about, every company has a unique, a certain unique way of doing things. Now, in some cases, everybody kind of likes to Go back and label, like, you're a contractor, you're a general contractor. This is how you do things. This is the way, you know, you're tracking your, your, uh, cost in excess of billings, your billings ex- in excess of cost, or, you know, you're the way your company approaches uh, a certain type of, um, industry where you're kind of globbed into a bunch of other companies. And so what you want to do, if it's true, is point out anything that's very unique in the billing and collection process as far as cash flow goes. Because if if yours is so much more, not not necessarily like, it's just so much more advanced and maybe using technology, for instance, or, you know, I've seen companies, some companies start to kind of really wipe out a lot of their AR because they're able to collect so much more on the front end of a, of a, of a contract. And so they take less and less risk. Um, they're able to reduce a lot of the reliance on inventory. And so one of the things that you start looking at is the strength of how not just the customer revenue, but the, the way that the company approaches their business model. And that could be unique, not necessarily just, you know, one company does it always the same, right? And so that's kind of the exciting part about really being able to analyze and look at how companies do certain things, you know, differently. Um and, and there's a there's an innovation to that that I think is kind of interesting. And so as we cycle through that, the more, you know, the thing I always tell people when I do review the forecast for strength purposes, um, I'm always kind of putting them in the, the room with me. And I'm saying to them, hey, if we're, if we're sitting in the room with the trustee and the valuation firm, you know, the independent people that are looking at your business, super cold, how are we going to explain the strength of your cash flows as we go through each, each of these items. Now, the next section in the forecast is going to really be how, you know, what are the direct costs? What are the things that they're dealing with, you know, in creating the revenue? So they're 
obviously your labor costs, your supply costs. If there's certain um, cost of goods sold that are very unique to the, the kind of business model that you have, what are those? What have they been trending at over the last five years? What's changed when when COVID happened? What changed with those costs? What's happening with with inflation with those costs now? And what's going to happen going forward? Instead of saying my gross profit percentage was this every year, my gross profit is going to be the same as we go forward. Um, we want to understand the the reasons why the gross profit is going to be whatever the number is. And gross profit, let's just say it's going up positively every year. I'm like okay, what that means is if our if everything's kind of staying the same, you're becoming more and more cost efficient within your cost of goods sold. Are you paying people less? Are you able to go procure or find supplies, materials, you know, at more reasonable rates? Or where do you do that? Like, and what's the what's the potential of risk when it comes to those kind of things? So, you know, as we as we go into the feasibility stuff, I want to kind of point out that this is a very organic process. And even though we've done some valuation work and that moves us into the feasibility side, we may come back to that and kind of go back and forth on this a little bit. It's not like it, you know, the work we're doing is not as specific to like, you know, we do this and then we do this. It's not very, it's not like that. It's more about disclosing information and the, the people that we talk through as we go through that understand more about like what we're trying to accomplish. Because when we think about the success of our plan, our ESOP plan, we really want to nail down in this feasibility, not just the the numbers, but we want to nail down the 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 actual realistic nature of of creating this sustainable process this plan so in as we get through the gross margin then the next pieces are going to be really digging digging into the gna piece and that's going to be have we estimated things correctly you know like today we had a meeting where the company was like look we think we're going to have rate which is so hard for us to keep people we think we're going to have more raises um, and for the next couple of years, but we think it's going to start to normalize. So let's come up with a little bit of a higher percentage for raises for the forecast and then come back down as if as things hopefully normalize in the future. But if we don't do that, then we could overstate the cash flow that overstates the valuation potentially. And that puts us into a very difficult position of predicting the sustainability of of the ESOP as we start thinking again about um, the cash flow related to the debt that we're going to have. So, so we're really kind of stepping in today as we go through this into the mission of, of really understanding how this is going to connect. It's going to take, this is going to take us several episodes because I, I want to connect the dots between um, the starting point of, of why we're doing this into some of the details of, of what we're doing, you know, again, conceptually and the value, I believe the value of doing it this way is going to help you to start to really understand um, things that you don't want to get too down, like say too down the road, so to speak in the ESOP process without really dealing with some of these things where you, you don't feel like you've gone through this maybe enough to really understand the worst thing you could do is put the whole deal together and at the end start thinking, oh crap, I don't I don't know if we're going to be able to pay for all this. I mean, how is this all going to happen? 
So, so we're going to come back to this with more discussions on feasibility, and it's going to be a lot of fun. I think we're going to build more Mission Impossible types of stuff in it because I think it's just a fun, fun way to go about it. The thing I'll leave you with is this one of the, one of the things I picked up on over the last couple of weeks and talking to some people about their deal. Um, I had a, a company that we're going to we're talking to about helping them with their ESOP, and they had been approached with this idea and they're a relatively small company, but this idea of what we would call a capital stack in order to maximize the amount of cash coming out of the deal. And at the end of the conversation with him, and I was asking him, cause I know he, he, he didn't feel like that was a good approach for them. And I, and we kind of talked about it back and forth a little bit about the idea that, Hey, you know, at the end of the day, the company's got to pay for this. Right. And if the company is not, if you're going to lever up the company with so much, so much debt, so you, that means you have senior debt, you have mezzanine financing, of all these, all these institutions are getting paid all this money for fees and everything else and interest. At the end of the day, does that make sense? I mean, do you want to put the company in that kind of position where where you've cleaned all the the um, you know all the leverage is coming on the balance sheet and you're so you know balancing that is is gonna help everybody sleep at night better. So I I always kinda like ask the question why why would anybody really do what, that kind of crazy amount of, of um, capital? I mean I, there might be a situation why they they would, but in general, speaking of the bell curve for an ESOP, I think what we're getting to is is you need to structure the debt side and feasibility to really match the appetite of the company. And then being part of the company going forward as a selling shareholder to feel like you as a board of director have done a good job of managing the company's um, position to where you haven't put them in harm's way. And I think that's really one of the reasons I wanted to do this as well is because I've been, you know, I just hear different stories about how people put these deals together and it just kind of raised my eyebrows a little bit and said, hey, you know, let's just let's just stop and talk about it. So, again, with all of that, I, I thank you guys for listening today. Please go to our website at journeytoanesop.com. If you have a question for us, um, please like and subscribe, share this with a friend and do the five-star rating on whatever platform that you use. I think that will really help. And with all that, have a wonderful day and enjoy your next step on this journey to an ESOP. Mm-hmm.